But here's an interesting uh, question for you. Have you ever sung a contemporary Christian song about the future judgment of God that's coming upon this world? I bet you haven't. Because those songs basically don't exist. For instance, today, our worship service today, you didn't hear a single song about the judgment of God because they're not out there. Now, how about any hymns that reference this coming judgment of God? Have you sung any of them? They are also few and far between. And there are many hundreds of years of hymnody that go into that. And so there's a much bigger selection of music for hymns than there is for any praise choruses or contemporary songs. And yet they're still hard to find. Yes, there are songs about the Lord's Day, a day of worship, Sunday, but not the day of the Lord, which is the day of the Lord's future coming and subsequent judgment. There are some hymns from ancient times that address the judgment of God, like one in the Middle Ages that was sung in Latin and was based upon Zephaniah 1.15, which says, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. And here's how that hymn goes. Day of wrath, O day of mourning, see fulfilled the prophet's warning. Heaven and earth in ashes burning. Oh, what fear man's bosom rendeth when from heaven the judge descendeth. One whose sentence all dependeth. How popular would a worship leader be or a contemporary Christian artist who selected a song or sung a song like that? Not very popular. And neither was Zephaniah, the 7th century B.C. minor prophet. He was classified as a minor prophet right alongside the other minor prophets. Uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And out of that list, some of those prophets, minor prophets, were pre-exilic. In other words, they prophesied before Israel was uh, defeated by the Babylons and carted off into captivity. Pre-exilic. And there were nine of them, and that goes Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the final. He's the ninth in the list of the pre-exilic. Then three of the minor prophets prophesied after uh, Israel came back. The remnant of Israel came back from captivity in Babylon. And that's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now Zephaniah, his lot in life was to speak on the most unpleasant subject in the entire Bible. The judgment of God. And this, of course, is not the only place this occurs in the Bible. There's plenty of other references throughout the Bible. But this is the most concentrated treatment of the judgment of God in the entire Bible. All 63 verses of Zephaniah are devoted to it. And in the Bible, there's 25 references to the day of the Lord, with 11 of them occurring right here in this book. Basically, every six verses in this book uh, present it in some way. And Zephaniah happened to be a contemporary of Jeremiah, as well as the other pre-exilic prophets, Nahum and Habakkuk. Now, there are those who think that this book should not be preached from. 
because it is a, not a message of love. And this book shouldn't be preached from as well, they think, because in the New Testament era that we're in right now, uh, this is a message of judgment. And that wasn't central to Jesus' earthly ministry. After all, Jesus began his preaching and teaching uh, in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And when he did, he read from the scroll of the Isaiah the prophet, a messianic text that we know of as Isaiah 61, verse 1, and then the first sentence of verse 2. And it says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight. For the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled the scroll back up, sat down, and uh, pronounced that today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture that I just read, demonstrative pronoun, this, in Jesus' first coming, messianic prophecy of Isaiah, these, verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, this is fulfilled, was fulfilled, it's right now in your hearing. But you know what the very next line of the prophecy is that Jesus didn't say on that moment? And the day of the vengeance of our God. So allow me to stop and back up just a little bit and ask what comes to mind when you hear me say the day of the Lord. 23 years ago, we actually did a sermon series through the nine minor prophets, the pre-exilic prophets, and we did one sermon on each one of those uh, prophets, just did an overview so we all would understand the continuity that took place there. And the last week of that message, uh, that series was on Zephaniah. And as I was heading into that last week, I asked my wife Cindy uh, a question. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, the day of the Lord? And her response was one that I truly expected. It's the return of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. And as I've already mentioned, Zephaniah repeats this phrase over and over and over again in this book, the day of the Lord. And it's the theme of the book. And many Bible scholars actually believe it makes an apt summary of all of the prophetic books. Now, please keep in mind the phrase, the day of the Lord, was given to Judeans over 2,600 years ago. The Messiah hadn't come the first time, much less were they looking for his second coming. So it's obvious that though the day of the Lord has a specific meaning to us, this side of the first coming of Jesus, this side of the cross and the resurrection, it would have a slightly different meaning to its first audience. Now, my intention today is not to focus on our differences uh, in vantage points, but to actually show our similarities in interpreting this book. So here goes. The day of the Lord is coming. And it was coming back then in 7th century BC, and it's coming again. And two things you need to know about the day of the Lord. It will be a day of judgment, and it will be a day of joy. And today's message concentrates on the first portion of the prophecy, the day of judgment. The day of the Lord will be a day of judgment for those who forsake the Lord. Now, Zephaniah here prophesies during the reign of the godly King Josiah. So let's look at that. Let's take a look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king 
of Judah. Now, to help illustrate what's being said here, uh, I actually, uh, in the importance of the genealogy of Zephaniah, I'm actually going to explain the, the uh, genealogy of Pastor Nathan, who was up here. And we've got pictures to show uh, the same sequence that happens going all the way back to the great-great-grandparents. So Pastor Nathan Nelson, we have a picture of him. He is the son of Pastor Daryl and Cindy Nelson, uh, who's the son of Laverne and Carol Nelson, who happens to be the son of Emil and Iva Nelson, and uh, the great-great-grandson of George and Essie Ham. George was born in 1878. Uh, Essie was born in 1888. Her maiden name was Stout. Uh, they were married. That marriage picture is from 1904. And you know, one of the difficulties when you trace your family history is you don't get to choose who your relatives are. Okay? And on Jesse's, or Essie's side, excuse me, was my grandma Ham. I knew her when I was a little tyker growing up, and she was an elderly lady. Uh, one of her, she was Stout, was her maiden name. And one of the descendants from the Stout family is Johnny Depp. So like I say, you don't get to choose your relatives. And it's humbling to find out who is in your family tree. But if you've ever wondered why Pastor Nathan is able to get along so well with youth, how he can be such a ham, now you know it, because it's in the family tree. He was a ham. He's from the hams. Okay? Now, the only difference in Zephaniah's genealogy is all the descendants were on the father's side. He was the great-great-grandson of Judah's godly king Hezekiah, who reigned at the turn of the 8th century B.C. He was followed by his son Manasseh, who co-ruled with his dad for 11 years, uh, and the last 44 years, he ruled by himself. He ruled in total 55 years. That's the longest any king had ever ruled in either Judah or Israel's history. And unfortunately, after his father's passing, he departed from the ways of the Lord, and he followed the example of the, his wicked grandfather Ahaz, leading the Judeans uh, into full-scale idolatrous pagan worship. And 2 Kings chapter 21 and 2 Chronicles chapter 33 detail this uh, for us. And I encourage you to actually to read those chapters this week if you have time in your devotions to check that out uh, in preparation for the rest of our sermon series here the next couple of weeks. I do today, though, want to take a look at 2 Kings chapter 21 verses 2 through 9. Listen to what it says. And it's after it told us that he was king for 55 years, etc. Here's what it says. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to the, all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built towers in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed. Get this. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made, and he put it in the temple. 
of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of Israel, Israelites wander from the land. I gave their ancestors. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law and that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray. So they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. He takes an Asherah pole and he puts it into the temple. That was used for the worship of the fertility god of the Canaanites, and it had highly uh, uh, sexualized practices associated with it. This was worse than the people who lived in the land. And then we read in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, the experience of when they were first exposed to some of these people. While Israel was staying in, and I won't say that word, it's, uh, uh, the, it might come out inappropriate to some of you, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before them. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. So you could say in one sense, Manasseh came by honestly what he was doing. And for 30 years, he led the Judeans astray. And if you recall your history about Judah in the Bible, the Assyrians ruled this region during this time, which included that they even ruled over Babylon. And though they had not completely conquered Judah like they had the northern kingdom, they did cart Manasseh off. And remember, they stuck a, no a ring in his nose. And they led him just like you would lead a bull with a ring through his nose, led him back into captivity. And what did he end up doing? He ended up repenting while he was there. And God freed him and allowed him to go back. And in the last four to five years of his reign, he demonstrated the genuineness of his repentance by trying to rid Judah of all the idol worship that he had reintroduced them to. But the damage was too much. Then his son Ammon takes over, and he reigns for two years when he's assassinated. He took Judah right back into idol worship, removing all the reforms that his father tried to put in place at the end of his rule. This is kind of the classic case here in modern life of parents of teenagers who uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ when their children are teen or in their upper teen years. And they've raised them completely differently and all of a sudden they're believers and they, they want to go to church and they want their children to come to faith in Christ and all of this. And the children who've been raised as non-believers are struggling to make that adjustment. That's what happened uh, in Ammon's case. Well, after Ammon, eight-year-old Josiah becomes king, and he rules for 30 years. And these were some of the happiest, best years in all of Judah's history. And at the age of 20, he begins to bring about religious reforms in Judah. The law has been discovered in the temple. And think of this. It was hidden in the temple to keep it away from his grandfather, Manasseh, who was a wicked king. So it's stashed in the temple. They're doing some work on it, and they discover it. It's read to Josiah, and he starts bringing about the reforms. And the most reform, famous reform that Josiah accomplished was the reinstitution of the Passover. Now think about that. Josiah, who means deliverance, reinstitutes the Passover, the very festival in which Jesus was crucified on at the very, first, uh, very time that the sacrificial lamb was being offered in the temple. The only sad portion of the story is that Josiah couldn't rid 
Judah of all of its pagan idolatry as it was so entrenched in the land. And when he died, things went back to the way things used to be. Zephaniah was born during Manasseh's wicked reign, and one of the meanings of his name is Yahweh has hidden. And historians believe he probably was hidden at birth and in the early stages of his life, uh, like Jesus had to be hidden because of the wickedness in the land. And Zaphon in the Canaanite religion was the name of one of their gods. So Zaphon is the first part of Zephaniah. Uh, and it can mean that God, or what they thought was God, is actually Yahweh. Zephaniah, and he prophesied in the early portions of Josiah's reign before any of the Reformation and religious revivals took place. Verses 2 and 3. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now the Hebrew word here for earth or that's used is Adama, and it means tilled land. So I'm going to sweep away all the private property. I'm going to sweep away all the arable land, which means land that could be tilled, land that could be cultivated. And the sweeping away of human control of agriculture is the exact reversal of Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. It's a reversal of that. It's sweeping the earth means cleansing the earth of food-producing people. And of course, God can allow this through any means. But you just look at the war in Ukraine right now. Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe and much of the world. And you realize that Ukraine has the largest seed library in the world to preserve and, and care for seeds that are so important in the harvest and, and, and the feeding of humanity because of droughts or other things happen, you know, bad storms and all the, 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 the atrocities that could happen. Well, what could a bomb do to this seed bank? this seed library that's underground and stored to feed all the peoples of the world. You don't have to think very far about how the sweeping could take place. And that doesn't even take into account uh, fires, which we saw how Maui was devastated. And when fires come through at that kind of intensity, it makes the land hard to grow crops. Or there's floods or droughts or lack of precipitation. And the thing is, the sweeping of the land destroys, he says, all the societal structures of corruption, rebellion, and false worship because all of them depend upon food. Verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests. You know, in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, the city was destroyed. The merchant's uh, wealth was confiscated. So thorough was the defeat that the Babylonians, just like the Nazis conquering Eastern Europe and France in World War II, they went from house to house to find people who were opposing them and people who were trying to hide from them. And the prophet Zephaniah tells us that there's three specific groups in Judah here 
who are being singled out. Number one, those who are worshiping the hosts of heaven from their rooftops. In other words, astral worship. And that was common in Babylon, and it was common in Canaan. People liked worshiping the stars, and they liked worshiping the moon. And we have plenty of worship going on like that in our world. We have plenty of pantheists out there who worship the rocks and hug the trees and love the waters of Mother Earth, and they worship Mother Earth, and they worship Mother Lake Superior. Verse 5 says this, those who bow down on the roofs to the worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech. Okay, those who worship the Lord and also worship Molech, false gods. Now, Molech was a Canaanite god whom people would sacrifice their children to in order to prosper. Does that sound familiar? Okay? We get 1.3 million children that are sacrificed every year in America to this imaginary God. And 90% of them are convenience abortions. It's not due to undue hardships for the mother. It's not because of rape or incest or to save the life of the mother. It's not because of handicaps that a child in utero may have. No, 9 out of 10 abortions are because it was an unplanned pregnancy. It's the result of promiscuity. It's inconvenient. This is an unwanted child. This is going to interrupt someone's career or reputation or their prosperity. The third group are those who have turned from following the Lord altogether. Look at verse 6. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. He goes on to say in verse 7, be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. This is a time for reverence. There's going to be a sacrifice, and the sacrifice is going to be of a wicked nation, and it's going to start with its royalty, and they're part of the group that's all now being told to be silent. Look at verse 8. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons, and all those clad in foreign clothes. They're not used to being told to shut up and listen to my judgment. They're the ones who are used to passing out judgments. Verse 9. On that day I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. And this was a pagan practice uh, in entering worship facilities for their idols. And it goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. And you remember when the Philistines had conquered Israel because of Israel's lack of faith. And the Israelites thought if they just brought the Ark of the Covenant along, that that would automatically give them a a victory. And it didn't. In fact, the Philistines conquered uh, uh, Israel and they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in Dagon's temple. And what happens, the very first next day they go into the temple, uh, these priests and everything from Philistine, they go in there and there's Dagon, face down on the floor. So they prop their idol, their God, back up, put him back into his place. The next day they come back, boom, not only is he down, but his head's lopped off and it's in the threshold and his hands are lopped off and they're in the threshold. And we read in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 5, that is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any other who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So we've got all these people in Israel 
stepping over the threshold as they go in. They're practicing all these rituals to these false gods. Look at verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Fishgate was on the north end of Jerusalem. It's where all the invasions historically took place. And the wailing that's going to come from, from the new quarter, these are the new homes that are going up in Israel. This is the, where the wealthy are living. These are the suburbs of, of Jerusalem. And the loud crash that's coming from the hills, well, they put all of their idols all of the gods of Baals, the Asherah poles and everything else on the high hills so they would go up to worship and they could look up and they would be exalted. Those are going to come crashing down. By the way, Baal's name means master and owner and the crash means the dramatic end to this pagan god's influence. Verse 11, wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. Wail. It means to squeal like an animal that's caught by a predator or caught in a trap. Have you ever heard that? Or have you ever heard a, 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 the death moan of a black bear? I mean, it literally sends chills down your spine if you ever hear that. That's the kind of wailing that's going to take place because your economic system, your markets are going to completely crash. Three sounds, cry, wail, and crash. The entire city is going to be devastated. It's going to lose its source of food. It's groceries, it's grocery stores in that sense, uh, it's neighborhoods, it's economy. Does any of this sound familiar? What you see happening in our cities and our nations right now? And it's going to be demolished. All the businesses will be gone. Look at verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on the dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. See, the biggest problem back then was complacency. It was practical atheism. It was living as if God did not exist, saying that God isn't going to do anything. Besides, I got plenty of money. I got plenty of reserves, so I'm ready for anything that comes my way. God's word says, wake up from your slumber. A sacrifice is coming, and you're it. Your wealth will be plundered. Your homes will be destroyed. And your livelihoods will all vanish. Verses 13 and 14. Their wealth will be plundered. Their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the vine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry of that day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. The Lord is coming to judge the world and his people. This is an apocalyptic, this is apocalyptic language, folks. The mighty warrior is God. And this is going to be an epic of biblical proportions judgment. And God is angry with his people. And the passage here is the most graphic description of God's anger in the entire Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24 says, For the Lord God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In the New Testament, we hear that God in his very nature is love. God is love. We also hear that God is spirit. But God is also something else. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 tells us, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming 
fire. And yes, God is love, but he's also a mighty warrior, a jealous God, a God of wrath. And Israel had been warned many times over. They were warned in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It would be good for you to read that chapter this week too. That when they came into the promised land and they prospered and they ate so much and their livestock prospered and they gained wealth and all these things, that the temptation in their hearts would be to forget God. Does that sound familiar? Verse 16. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. People's money will not save them. And the history of the world and the history of warfare is that people always, the last thing they hang on to is money because they can always use that and use their wealth to bribe somebody and to perhaps save their lives. And those of you who are from Finnish descent in here, like I am, half Finnish, when the Nazis were leaving Finland at the end of World War II, the last weeks that they were there, they knew it was curtains. They knew they were in serious trouble. So they had a scorched earth policy as they were going across Finland. And they were killing Finns every step of the way. And they were hanging them from power poles and from light poles. They would be dangling along every road as they went. And any time they could confiscate wealth, especially gold or silver, they would take it. Because they wanted to be able to buy their way out of, out of Germany. Because they knew they were in serious trouble for you know, wars, crimes against humanity that they had done in warfare. Here it says, your money is going to do nothing for you. It's not going to save you from my judgment. Well, what happens in the New Testament when we're talking about the day of the Lord? Listen to verses 36 to 44 of Matthew 24. But about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known of what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You know, whenever the Lord steps into history, it is a day of judgment. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and conquered the ten northern tribes. They conquered Israel, and Israel ceased to exist. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians defeated the Judeans, and they hauled off the survivors away to captivity in Babylon, a tiny little remnant of Judah and of Israel. When Jesus returns, it will be a day of judgment for all the people on this planet 
who have forsaken the Lord. For all the people who are trusting in themselves. So I ask you today, where are you at with the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord of your life? If not, you need to accept him. And you can do that right here today. You can recognize that I'm a sinner. That Jesus died for my sins. Paying the penalty for that. And that I want to receive him as Savior and Lord of my life. That I want to face that judgment with Jesus standing in my place. I don't want to face it depending on my wealth. I don't want to face it depending on my good works that I've done in this world. I don't want to face it in any of those ways. And maybe some of you here today are professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet you're worshiping at another altar as well. You know, you're worshiping at the altar of pleasure. You're worshiping at the altar of promiscuity. You're worshiping at the altar of materialism or of convenience or of consumerism or of power or whatever altars you have in your life. It's time to repent and to change your ways before it's too late. You know, the saying goes that if people would know what tomorrow holds, they would live differently today. Well, consider yourself warned from God's word. Judgment is coming. Let's pray. God, our Father, these are not easy portions of the Bible to talk about. In fact, God, we don't even have many songs about it because... Nobody would be very popular writing songs like this or sharing a message like Zephaniah had to share. God, it's so sobering. And yet we look at our world today and we see the loss of businesses. We see the loss of infrastructure. We see devastation at at really epic proportions, biblical proportions. So hearing these things about judgment, that's not too far-fetched. We're seeing it on the news every single day. And God, I pray right now, if there's anybody here today in person or anybody listening online who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who's going to appear on Judgment Day all by themselves, oh, I pray today, God, that they would accept Christ as Savior. With all heads bowed and eyes closed, if anybody here is wanting to accept Christ and, and do that right now, Just please put your hand up. Let me know. And if there's, Lord, today people here that are living a double life, two different ways, saying they believe in you and are following you and trusting you, but then are living like the devil, living like the world, I pray that today would be their day of change because we've all heard the biblical warning. And God, we know that there's hope. We know there's Jesus. We know that. But we also recognize how serious it is to fall into the hands of a a God who's a consuming fire. So Lord, we pray to this end that all of us will place our faith wholeheartedly in Jesus, turn from our sin, and trust you completely, and quit trusting in ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.